In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague and official agitator and friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Mr. Yoda. Hello there. I am the agitator against the status quo. That's what everyone should know. <laughs> so uh, occasionally you might have to pull Adam back in the line. Anyways, for today's episode, we're going to continue our exploration of indoor environmental uh, research with our special guest, Dr. Zoltan Nagy, uh, researcher of all things good in the world of building science, occupants, and controls. Zoltan, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Zoltan, the world uh, wants to know what made you give up a big chunk of your life to earn your doctorate degree while all your friends were out partying. And uh, <laughs> how did you end up working at the University of Texas, Austin? You're the director of the Intelligent Environment Laboratory, is that right? Yes, that's correct. I was uh, appointed here last year. The story goes a little bit back. So I actually studied mechanical engineering back in, in Zurich at ETH. And then I got a PhD in mechanical engineering with a focus on robotics, or actually micro-robotics, which was fun, uh, doing all kinds of biomedical research. And then I moved, I did a postdoc still in Zurich, and I moved into the architecture group and worked on building systems, but a lot on it from the architecture perspective, because it was in the Department of Architecture. That was fun as well. And and we looked a lot into building control, but also designing stuff. And then since uh, August last year, I moved here to Texas to start my own group. That's very cool. So how does one go from robotics into building controls? Well, there are many paths, but mine mine was essentially due to a pretty awesome project that we worked on back in Zurich, which was a robotic facade. And so we worked on, and I was leading this, this, this effort to create a dynamic facade that would, you know, modulate light uh, into the room and, and you modulate light, you essentially modulate energy so you can deal with, or you have to think about, you know, heat gains and heat losses. When you think of shading systems, they're perfect for incorporating PV cells, which are coming out more and more now, thin film, so lightweight. And so we were, yeah, thinking of this multifunctional, highly distributed, small modular facade where yeah, you'd have these individual modules that could provide shading, modulate light, but also produce electricity. And so we needed to design uh, mechanical systems. So it was a lot of robotics. We designed new actuators, actually, that would hold it, like pneumatic stuff, uh, and then did all kinds of analysis within, in a group of, like, five people. So it was not me alone, but, but that was, like, a good transitioning because once you have that facade you need to think about well now there is a people inside the room right so we need to consider that and create an interaction between the people and now all kinds of things happen right how do you interact when do you move autonomously what do people want what do we want and so all kinds of different questions 
uh, you know, go into your brain once you leave the field of engineering where everything is determined, there's a solution to problem, and now people come in and it becomes like just a big mess in a way. But it's <laughs> <laughs> a fun damn, mess, right? damn human people. Right, right. <laughs> Who needs them? Yeah, if only no, there were no people, buildings would work, right? Yes, yes. If you want, yeah. I mean, if you want, yeah, energy efficient buildings, remove the people, right? That's the, that's the solution. <laughs> There's a theme that we're that we're finding out with you know the researchers that we're talking with, and that is is that ultimately these electromechanical systems that we're developing in energy systems have to be managed by people. And so, Zoltan, you know, what question I have for you is that as this technology evolves and systems get more sophisticated, what do you think is going to happen with the facility management people that has to ultimately make these things work over the life of the building? Are we going to see skill sets change in facility managers and uh, technicians? And if there is a need to change, is society going to produce those types of individuals as we go forward? I think you will always need, you know, facility management, especially for larger, larger buildings. When you have multiple offices, multiple buildings, like a campus, for example, you need to people take care of to daily business. What you will need, what we will see more and more, I think, and I'm pretty sure because that's what I'm working on, is that, you know, we'll have much more data support. So we'll have, you know, buildings enter the era of big data. So you will have constant streaming of hundreds of not thousands or ten thousands of data points. And a person cannot deal with it by just looking at all of these points because it's just too much. So we'll have systems that will support the people, but we do need to educate correctly in order to be able to use this information. So what I don't believe is that the systems or these this big data algorithms will somehow remove the people because that's too far. Uh, you will not have an autonomous campus. I don't believe that. But you will have the people interacting with the systems maybe in a, in a different way than what we see today. There's two sides to this though, right? There's the user experience and how much control they have. And then there's the, the facilities management. Now, as you were saying that, I was thinking, is there a role for AI here? You know, taking this huge data pile that's going to be streaming in minute, second by second, and then AI crunching that and making decisions? Is that the future? Right, Yes, that, that's pretty much what I'm describing. That's kind of what we work on. There are many different levels. You can think about this, uh, you know, on a building level and on the systems level that, uh, you know, the user in the room does not necessarily see, but the facility management sees it. Think of your air handling units. Think of your, you know, overall energy consumption, electricity data, and things like that. And AI will definitely have a role in, in the terms of simplifying the information, you know, reducing to the most important things, making the information more accessible, crunching it down to the essential things, maybe ordering it, prioritizing. Again, I don't think that big decisions will be made by AI just because I don't know if, you know, what the level of comfort is that people will be allowing the systems to take over the yeah. management of a building. I'm, I'm willing to poke it. We're working here on the UT campus, so we'll see that uh, shortly. But I also think that, yeah, as a researcher on campus, if I would go and tell facility management that we're taking over, they'll be just shutting the door at me and say goodbye, and then, you know, nothing's <laughs> going to happen. And that's pretty much how it will be. So there's a lot of pushback uh, on it's, this side. It's called scope creep, right? <laughs> For a reason. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. And, and for those that are listening, uh, we should know that AI stands for artificial intelligence. Correct. 
So just to finish, my thought is, is, you know, there's so much going on in a building and, and there's no somehow, we should not believe, and, and the facility management knows the building much, much better than AI probably ever will because they know every screw in the building basically, right? And there is, there's no need to believe that AI will ever have the same amount of knowledge. I don't think that will happen because every building is very different and so you would need a totally super generalized AI yeah. which probably will not work as good on a building, or you need a very specific one for every building, which will be very expensive to produce. Would it become self-learning in a way, ultimately, right? right? You'd start with a generic AI that would learn the building it's it's in. I mean, even if it was taking a lot of the, if you took the 80-20 rule and said 80% of FM decisions are pretty basic, you know, routine decisions, and it could do that, which left, you know, humans to do the other 20%. Exactly. So I think, and a lot of what we're working on here is based on this interactive feature. So you have a building and you have interactions with humans, at least on two levels. One is what you just said on the facility management level, and the other one is with the room level with the actual yeah. occupant. And and uh, yeah, I think that what is conceivable is that you'll have you know a set of rules that say, okay, these decisions you can make on your own, and then another set of decisions need an acknowledgement by the facility management, and another set of decisions you know, go ahead and do it, things like that. I think that's that's conceivable. Actually, yeah, that's interesting because if I was to say the, the FM manager for a building and my system presented me with, it says, you know, I've done X, Y, Z routine decisions for you, this is them, and these are decisions and these are the options around these decisions which I require you to acknowledge. You know, that would just be right. an easy boom, done, then off it goes. Exactly, exactly. So it's more to support the facility management rather than to replace it. Right? Yeah. And and this way, uh, this way it's much easier to work. I mean, because it gets the best of both worlds because they don't want to deal with every little detail, I, I assume. Yes. And uh, and so so routine tasks can be taken over and then, then the majority of the tasks can be spent on important stuff. So do you guys, both of this question for both of you, do you see there being another type of individual joining the facility management team? I mean, there's still the day-to-day, you know, replacing motors and fixing valves and, and all of that type of stuff. But there seems to be this, with this introduction of, of AI, that now there's a, a need for another type of individual that both understands the technology of AI, but also the mechanics and electronics of buildings. Oh, I've got some strong opinions on that, but I'll let uh, Zoltan go first there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, I, I I don't know. I, I think what we'll see is more an education for the because essentially what you need to do is understand how you deal with data. And that's not, you know, I don't think you need a totally new person who enters this team, but you need the people who are there understand what's happening. And so that's all. Yeah, I, I take, to take that question then, two parts for me. One is systems are either going to get more complex or a lot more simpler to deal with this. My view is they need to get a lot simpler to do with this, where radiant technology will come in in that, you know, move away from VAV and a thousand moving parts to something a lot more simple. So that takes the ability of an AI to deal with that, makes that a lot easier, a lot less maintenance. And so if if systems get more simple, that's one thing. But the other thing is this, you know, is there a new role for a data scientist in buildings? Possibly. But, you know, people talk about BIM and Revit, and that's great. I'm all, I'm on board. I'm on the Revit train, big time. Woo-woo. But <laughs> this is the problem with it. There are two major problems with this. It's too freaking expensive because it's a monopoly. And until 
the Yoda of Revit all the way down to an FM guy who changes a filter can use it properly. It has to be so easy to use that a maintenance guy or a technician can just walk up to it and just extract what they need out of it without having to go on a two-day training course. That is the right. Nirvana. How we get there, I don't know, because it is not at all in the interest of anyone who sells Revit or CAD to make that happen. <laughs> right? Yeah. So there, and if you're anyone who is in working for Autodesk, please take note. There's a revolution coming. Pay <laughs> <Hey>, attention. <laughs> so we want to come to the paper that you're going to be mm-hmm. publishing. But uh, before we get there, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing. And uh, there's some changes going on at the UT Austin, I understand. And uh, within the Department of Energy or Engineering, isn't the uh, Dr. Corsi, uh, is he leaving, I guess, or is he taking a sabbatical? Or he's No, he's stepping down as department chair. So okay. his, his, his tenure as department chair finishes, uh, I want to say, end of July, I think, okay. but I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's okay. all. It's not a, there's no revolution going on. <laughs> <laughs> no, so what, one of these days we'll have to get him or maybe get his dog on. Well, maybe we'll, Adam, yes, we'll interview both. his dog. <laughs> Both of them. <laughs> the thing with He's academia, right? Guy. Everything is yeah. evolution, not revolution, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So tell us what you're doing at the UT. Well, teaching is a lot, but for the, that that works here, it's basically what we just discussed, kind of pretty much on time. So, or I mean, on 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 topic is thinking about how we can use the data that's around us all the time and and record it all the time more efficiently to help, you know. Facility management on one end, but on the other hand, also help the people be more comfortable in the in the rooms, uh, in the buildings that they have, and also, which is what we want at the end, is to use less energy, right? So we have this kind of trade-off between being very energy efficient, which is you know turn off all the lights, don't use the thermostats, remove the people, and then that contradicts with you know <laughs> use your use your office for what it's there and and work in it and so that that's the balance that we're working on uh, and and doing it with with data because the the other thing is like i said before we generate a lot of data but paradoxically it's not really saved so i mean not everywhere ut does a great job they have we have a lot of data but if you go on other commercial buildings maybe you have data that goes two weeks back two months back if you're lucky and otherwise, you lose it, and it's a set because you know you can learn a lot from the past, and you can extract a lot of information without having to do much actually, but just looking at your data, even if it's just on a building level. And so we were we're trying to work in between what are the right algorithms to use, how can we demonstrate things in, in buildings, you know, and actually do stuff. So we're trying to do the controls in buildings for thermal or lighting in different uh, capacity. Okay, and in simulations. Um, yeah, so we have a, we have a Ashray Long Beach is coming up for, and uh, we uh, have a seminar on what came first, uh, thermal comfort or energy, and uh, <laughs> and you know so much of the world of property development and architecture and engineering has been so focused on energy conservation, and the world of comfort has sort of not even hit people's radar screens, but. Ultimately, it's a person that senses the environment, has a perception right. of the environment, and will control the energy systems. So, right. 
I need some ammunition for this debate, Zoltan. <laughs> <laughs> well, so whatever and, you and tell me, if it's good, I'll use it. If it, if it's bad, yeah. I'm not going to use it. <laughs> oh, it's great. So listen, okay, <laughs> and and that's perfect. So because, like we said in the beginning, I was not educated in the building field, right? Which I take as a as an advantage. So I'm coming in like from a sideline, basically, and get a different view on things. And in order to do that, as uh, you know, and in science, we, we have to review literature, right? And so, because the, the other things is always like discussing with people like you guys to say, oh, something's wrong, you know, the things are not working correctly, but for the scientist or researcher, you need proof, right? I cannot just go by yeah. people's opinions. And so when I started uh, when in August, we I sat down with my student and said, let's just review the literature and see where we stand on thermal comfort compared to, you know, building energy and energy control and building control with respect to energy. And so he, he goes away and he comes back a few days later and he said, oh, I just weighed too many papers. If I found like five and a half thousand or something papers by just looking the simple search terms. There's no way I can read this. But here's another idea. Let's do some, again, AI, artificial intelligence, data mining, text mining on this data set and see what we come up with. And so we used, you know, this data set, basically downloaded from a scientific database, Web of Science, all the papers related to thermal comfort, or that would come up with the keywords thermal comfort and that would come up with keywords related to building control, energy control, and use it a quantitative approach to see, okay, which words come up very often, which words come up together. And then we plotted these. And so the first thing is, to answer your chicken and egg problem, the thermal comfort-related words dates back to the early, late 19th century. So the first work was on thermal comfort, on ventilation, and it was for disease prevention, right? So make a correct ventilated right. house in order to reduce you know, spread of disease. And so that's that's really where, where the first works are that are traceable in this database. So, so what date was that then, did you say? You... I think, and I would have to look it up, but I think it's like 1890 or something like that. I want to say that, yeah, or 1820 actually. So it's 19th century, yeah. Napoleon times. Wow. And those would have been uh, probably studies or documents published by physicians at the time, I would think. This, yeah, this would be, yeah, things like that by doctors, people yeah. studying heat also. That's the beginning of, or middle of thermodynamics studies too. So it was people understanding science of thermodynamics, of heat, ventilation, and how that related to people. And like, I mean, they saw that if they open the windows, they get less sick. That makes perfect sense because it coincides with, certainly in the UK, for example, in industrial revolution of the migration from agriculture to industrial concentrations of people in cities. That makes perfect sense, actually, when you think about it. Correct. Adam, Correct. Is it, is it, Adam, is it true that in the UK, when they had pollution problems, that their solution to the pollution was to actually build taller chimneys so the plume ended up in someone else's country? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> that still goes on today, right? Do you know what that goes? That, that theory happens today with nuclear power plants and having them on the coast blowing a certain way. So all the French ones blow into England. It's just things, the old guy is the new guy, things just don't change, right? <laughs> so anyways, yeah, sorry, right. Zolta, we told so, our discussion. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. But, but then it continued, right? We have the early studies on, on thermal comfort in the 70s with, in Denmark, Olaf Fanger's work. 
and, and that established a scientific basis on how you know people perceive comfort in a very quantitative engineering way. That's really where it started. And the energy came a little later with, uh, I mean, co- coincided with this, with the energy crisis in the 70s and oil embargoes, where all of a sudden energy was not you know, free anymore or, or endless or so on. And you can see that the papers start coming up with, you know, we need to save energy, we need to be more efficient and so on. And up until the 90s, actually, there was more work on, on energy-related work uh, energy-related papers, very little. So the, the total amount of papers is very little until the early 1990s, mid-1990s, a little bit more on the building energy side. But then from, let's say, 2000 on, it explodes, and you have much more papers or work on the thermal comfort side. It starts with thermal comfort, and building energy sort of takes over a little bit. The overall level is very small, and then it flips again. More people work on thermal comfort by judging by the amount of publications. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, so what is the leading indicator here? So it seems to me that the academic community is reacting to a phenomenon, right? Then they right. do research and they try and address that phenomenon. Then the phenomenon evolves into something else. So there's, right. there's always a catch up thing going on here, right? So, right. you know, you'll see in the Energy coming into focus in the 70s, which makes perfect sense, you know, and the, and the way cities really grew in, the first event of mega cities at that point. And now you're getting possibly back to comfort as a driver? Right. I mean, now people are rediscovering those works. You have still energy a lot. So the, the, the both, you know, both works develop at the same rate. It's just much more, you know, output from the thermal com- comfort community. Obviously, energy is again an issue today with, you know, uh, pushing towards renewables. And then now the control community discovering the problem of building control on their own. So in the beginning, the control problems were not as developed as they are today. So a lot of the explosion today is based on applying the established control science onto buildings. Right, which is a, which is a problem on its own, but that's that's what we found in this, this work in the end. So we looked at basically how close words related to, you know, thermal comfort are related to building energy and building comfort kind of thing. And li- like I said, when when you plot these words, how often they occur and how how close they are, you'll see that, you know, things like PMV, so the predicted mean vote, or PPD, the percentage of people dissatisfied, which are measures for thermal comfort are like as far away from building control like Bucknet or building energy management or sensor or even smart building as possible on this map. So we have thermal comfort on one end, we have building control on the other hand, and and in between we have things, you know, like IEQ, uh, we have materials uh, that sort of fill up. And then in recent years, we have also urban urban studies that, that people started studying. So Robert's getting excited here. I can see this. I think you got something to say about this, Robert. <laughs> well, I just, I, it's so bizarre that the controls ultimately are the ambassador on behalf of the occupants to the HVAC system. Right. And yet the controls as that ambassador don't speak the language that the body speaks. Right. There's no recognition of mean rate and temperature, for example, or operative temperature. You know, none of the big control companies, and I hope these guys are listening, you know, <laughs> because they don't produce an operative thermostat. But ultimately, right. how the body experiences the space is an operative temperature. And for those that are that are listening and don't know what I'm talking about, 
welcome to my world <laughs> because so many practitioners haven't got a clue about what upper temperature is. So in simple form, it's the marriage between what the radiant temperature experience is in the space and the air temperature. And it's a little bit more detailed than that. But, you know, 99.9% of all thermostats measure dry bulb temperature, air temperature. They don't even recognize that radiant exchange. And 60%, and, and you can write this down, anybody that's listening, <laughs> you know, at rest, wearing normal clothes, 60% of the exchange that an occupant has with the space is via radiation. That has been documented in medical textbooks, in indoor environmental ergonomic textbooks, and it's in the ASHRAE handbooks. So why do we let a device, you know, which, which speaks for us on our behalf, it's it's inadequate. It's it's dysfunctional. Right, and and that's that's what we find. I mean, that's literally the the outcome of the study is that there is everything you, the colleagues in the control engineering community how they deal with the problem is so abstracted as you know okay our target is to maintain a certain temperature or band of temperatures in the house which is fine for the control problem but it's not fine for the comfort problem right, right. And, and that's well, what it yeah. seems yes, that's yes, what it yes. seems that's what's a little bit contradictory but also that's what gives me a little bit of job security so that's where I'm working <laughs> <at>. <laughs> yeah, I can't can't be mad at that I understand that right. logic so here's here's a question is thermal comfort on one side and energy conservation on the other side are they compatible bedfellows or are they incompatible bedfellows I think well, like what, what Robert just said, I mean, if you look at the physics of things, right, most of the time when you're sitting at your desk, you're radiating off heat. And so, but what we also know is what you said early on, uh, you know, if you have radiant heating or radiant cooling, you can use much less energy or low exergy systems, yes, which do not need, or which you can basically use environmental temperature or almost close to environmental temperature or geothermal temperature to heat or cool your environment, almost no matter where you are uh, in the world. And so actually, the two are perfectly compatible. You just need to do it, I think. So herein lies the revolution, if you're listening to this, or you guys up there with your Che Guevara poster <laughs> on your wall, right? There is a path right. dependency, particularly strong in North America, where the industry and the supply chain is geared to stick in rooftop air handling units on top of crappy buildings, right? And to get these two things to work in harmony, thermal comfort and energy, you need to lose, use low exergy systems like displacement ventilation coupled with radiant heating and cooling with proper envelope, right? That's, that's it. Right. It's not a secret. Everybody knows the solution, right? But it's for also, some it's reason… Also green. It's also yeah. much greener in a way, right? It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, so it has to happen almost. Like there's no way around it, I think. So I've been thinking that for 10 years, but it doesn't happen. So why not? I, my conclusion is path dependency, fear of change. I don't know what it is. Lobbying. What is it? <laughs> it's probably all of the above. It's, it's, but for sure, it's a certain inertia. I mean, if you have a huge industry working in a certain way on many different levels, right, it's hard to change it all at once. But we need demonstrations, and then we need, like with every technology, people spearheading, demonstrating, showcasing, and other people willing to try, and then it will change. And essentially, the minute it will become much cheaper, it will switch. Yeah, there's almost an analogy here with electric cars coming up as a challenge to the petrol car, right? So, you know, you beat, you beat a bad idea with a better idea, right? But that better idea has to be 
really to 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 get a fold has to be better and cheaper. So demonstrably so that you can't ignore it, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. But you can see it in another field. Immediately here in Texas, actually, we have, it is an oil and gas state, right? But as soon as solar becomes cheap, it will flip and people yeah. will use it. So it's the same thing, just on a different level. I think we should uh, bring to attention again to our listeners, we use the word here, exergy. That's not a spelling <laughs> mistake or or an auditory uh, mispronunciation. So most engineering programs, at least that I'm familiar with, don't actually get into exergy analysis. And so in a real basic way, it's probably the best way to explain it is that when we use combustion-based systems, we're generating industrial-grade temperatures, 3,400 degrees Fahrenheit or 1,700 degrees Celsius. What we know to condition buildings is that we need temperatures that are actually at or below what's in the human body. We don't need 1,700 degrees Celsius or 3,400 degrees to condition a building. We need 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, or 40 degrees C or whatever that is. And so when we use oil or gas, propane, anything that burns, we're generating with a limited resource, high temperatures that we never actually extract all of the potential work out of it. And as such, we can have combustion systems that might be producing 97% combustion efficiency, but in an exergy analysis, they might be getting 6% efficiency. And we can't continue to do that as a society to use limited resources to create industrial-grade temperatures for non-industrial-grade applications. And uh, that's where I think things like you know solar comes into play when these are all uh, hydro, all low exergy energy sources, and they just marry up with radiance so well. Your Adam, your point is very correct, and, and same thing, Zoltan, with what you said. So I just want to clarify what that exergy was all about. No, that's, that's, uh, that's well said. So, you know, putting my crazy Christopher Walken head on here, you know, we need this industry, please, anyone who's listening, tell me <laughs> where the Elon Musk is. We need our Elon Musk. You know, yeah. Elon Musk is an outlier. He's Iron Man. How that guy's not been assassinated by some lobbying group, I don't know. I mean, he must have so many people angry at him at the moment, you know, the petroleum industry, the car industry. But, you know, <laughs> the building industry needs that guy. I know he's doing solar roof tiles, but that's just a small portion, right? We're talking about the whole right. pie here. We need that guy. If you're out there, please come forward. <laughs> <laughs> so, Zoltan, when – so this – paper that you're in the process of getting published and I'm looking at the graphic as you shared it with me and anybody who's on Twitter I probably can get their hands on it I'm guessing right, right? yeah right. so what's what's your Twitter name again Zoltan uh, it's at Zoltan Negi uh, except there always a zero because it's a very frequent name I had to change <laughs> to zero so what we'll do for <laughs> listeners we'll put uh, all Zoltan's contact uh, information on, on all website. social media in the show notes so you can click on it and follow his work yeah perfect so yeah so I'm looking at this this illustration and of course it you know a picture tells a million a million words in this case because uh -huh. there's just I mean you looked at you know they're like looking at some of the words here indoor air quality indoor environmental quality adaptation health all of these search words that we're using, and then that's on the sort of the center left, and then on the right-hand side was all of the uh, BAM and building control sensor sensors. Right. Why do, why do you think that the control manufacturers and the people that do research work on controls have ignored the environmental metric that's so important in buildings? 
Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I would like to hear an answer. I think it's just tough. I mean, that's that's what it is, right? You have to start dealing with people in buildings, and that's just difficult. I mean, that that's how it is. Even what we understand, so the PMV or the PPD, the predicted mean vote, is a number that you know represents how, let's say, eighty percent of the people will understand or feel in the space. In, in a particular location. So it's an interesting or, or probably useful tool for designing a space, but then operating it with one particular person in that space is, again, a different story because he might be not part of those 80% who like it. And so to deal with this uncertainty in a very systematic way is, is difficult. My theory on this is there's a concentration problem in control, building controls. You know, you've got the big players, Honeywell, Siemens, but there's not enough competition there to really force innovation. So at some point, one of them has to break ranks and do something, right? The other thing is also, which is another paradox, which is not in this plot or not in in our world, and you guys are the practitioners, so maybe you want to jump in on this one, but, you know, when you present or when these companies come and present you the bill, they say, okay, this is the energy, whatever, this is what we will charge and here's how it will operate. And... There is no line on that that says comfort, for example, right? There is just it just doesn't pay, I guess. I think that's a, that's just a hypothesis, and the, the the people who pay that bill do not, I guess, care about comfort in that sense. Other than it's you know you maintain a certain temperature, which is again paradox because if you look at where you spend the most of your money if you own a building, whether it's you know university or it's a bank or whatever, it's you know a big chunk of that goes to your people and not your energy bill. And so ignoring the comfort of the people seems contradictory to me at some point because if they become sick and if they don't come to work, if they're not productive, then you know you will actually lose productivity and money in the end. And the, and the, the, the Center of Built Environment in Berkeley did tons of studies on this that you can have very little impact or a very large impact with very little interventions just to make people comfortable in their building, uh, not necessarily on the energy side, but also how you design a space, which is in a far bigger problem um, when we get into architecture. The, the problem there is that the constituency you're talking about, which is massive, has no vote or money, right? So there's right. no consequences so the, the, in the mm-hmm. game for the owner to listen to them, right? Right. Whereas the energy bill is objective, it's measurable, it's easy to understand, Exactly. Now, the other problem with comfort is it's hard. I mean, Dr. Olofenga did a lot of work on that, but it's really hard to objectively measure that, right? Absolutely. Now, if people rated or somehow had to pay to be where they were, then their decision-making process would be a bit different, right? Right. There is just no stake in it. That's yeah. all, right? Yeah. Well, I think there's certainly buildings out there now in in the inventory of finished projects that were built with the occupant in mind, and I don't know if we've talked about them, but you know, if you think in terms of in Canada here, the Manitoba Hydro Building, in the U.S., you have the Bullet Building or the uh, NRL Building in Colorado, and there's other ones out there that those buildings were owner built. They yep. were, you know, they're yep. going to own those buildings, they're going to operate them, and they have to bear the cost of of the productivity or loss of productivity, Sultan, as you were referring to earlier. So they have a completely different ethos. In looking at the architecture, right, and somehow and we have to be able to transfer that over into those that are building spec buildings. You know, yes. that the other end of the spectrum, right? Right, and that's part of. So we we just got there. So when you're designing buildings, and that goes out to our colleagues in architecture as well, 
not to forget that they're designing the space for you know people and not you know the looks or whatever, but but just how the environment also will feel afterwards to them. So they keep that in mind that that it's not something that comes after they're designed, and then there is a you know an engineer that will say, all right, so here we'll put all the MVP or whatever. But it's actually an integrated process where you have to think about. Things like what you talked before. If you want to have radiant, you need to think about the surfaces. But it's not the engineers who will think about them; it's the architects, right? So we need to get them at the early stage at the same table, which again costs money and it pays off in the end or later. So it will. It's not. It's not. You know, going to happen anytime soon, probably. But I wanted to add one thing, though, that even though right now and like you said, there are you know projects being finished with these things in mind. There's also a lot of colleagues of mine working on these issues and publishing very recent work and things like that. So how can we directly incorporate people's behavior into the control loop and modify automatically? So there's great work coming out of, uh, you know, in California, uh, in CMU, Carnegie Mellon. We're doing great work, obviously, but all over the world, uh, in Zurich, my former colleagues. So there's work coming out. And it will just need a few more, you know, years or generations of people educated who will go out in the field with this kind of thinking to, uh, you know, change the world. That's my hope. That's what gives me optimism, actually, is that I'm hoping, certainly my, I look at my children who are in their early 20s and sort of finish up university, and they're not going to put up with the BS that we put up with, I don't think. They've got very different idea of what's right and wrong. You know, I'm right. a baby boomer, <laughs> probably the most selfish uh, generation ever to walk the earth right now. I always say to my kids, you know, you could be cleaning my mess up long after I'm gone. <laughs> Yeah, that and, might be the case. No. You know, but what gives me hope is, one, they're aware of that, and two, I don't think they're going to put up with the stuff we put up with. You know? Right, there is definitely change, yeah. And, and we're changing, so what, what we started, so back in Zurich, the group I worked with, we, we tried to start, or the, the professor there, Arno Schluter, he tried to incorporate architecture into engineering directly, so in the design process. What we try to do here at UT is, so I'm in the civil engineering department. My wife actually is teaching in the architecture department, very similar topic on building systems. So one of these semesters will throw all of these students into one big group and, you know, get things going from both perspectives, right? Because it's also a cultural issue between the disciplines. We have also, this year or, or next semester actually, we'll have the capstone projects of the engineering students and the architecture students will be one project. So they'll work on it together, which I think is also a good step, big step forward. There are not so many schools that do this stuff at this level to get you know these things going on. Understanding that this is a big issue and things need to change, and this is the way to change it. There's one profession that hasn't been mentioned yet, though, who I think plays a vital role in all of that, and that is the interior designer. That is a separate profession. And when you think in terms of materials of construction, interior materials of construction, outgassing is a, is, a, is a directly related to their decisions. Thermal comfort, believe it or not, is related to their thermal uh, their decisions because color in the infrared spectrum is either an absorbent or a reflector or somewhere in between. So choices in color are going to affect heat. Choices in materials will affect particulate generation and, uh, and outgassing. So, and then for those that know a little bit about radiant design, because the conductivity of the fluorine material uh, has an impact on fluid temperatures, therefore it has a direct influence on the efficiency of the cooling and heating plant. So 
we never underestimate the power of an interior designer. Um, some some people call them interior desecrators. <laughs> <laughs> Not my words. I think I think I came over from John Straub. I think Dr. John Straub maybe said that word once to me, but but they play a vital role, and I think we need to incorporate them in that dis, in that discussion of integrated design. You could wind up getting trolled now by some <laughs> interior designers. <laughs> Please, it wasn't my words. <laughs> But the message is clear, right? And and that's also something that needs to be addressed in the traditional way of how buildings are, you know, designed, commissioned, built, or built yeah. commissioned. In that they're not linear, but you have to get all the stakeholders early on in the design process to create something truly integrated yes. that takes care of all of these things, basically. Absolutely. And, and that's we change it in the university educational level to the people know that it's actually useful and important. And hopefully enough people, again, you know, you create a critical mass in companies that they will change it as well. And, and larger companies are doing it, so it's good. Okay, look, we should wrap up now, but I'd be very interested in getting back in touch with you in a little while and seeing how some of these projects come out because yeah. universities have a unique ability to like have this brain trust together and then some of them are so well endowed. What university in America is not building a building, right? Yep. A campus is just a forever project, right? Correct. So, you know, hopefully some of this thinking will fall into the projects. I'd love to see some of these ideas put to work there and maybe Absolutely. do a case study on it. So we'll keep yep. in touch with you. We'll put your contact details out there for everyone to see and follow your work. Have you got a website people can see? Yes, I do. nagy.cae.utexas.edu. Okay. Well, again, we'll put that in the show notes for everybody. Right. Okay, well, thanks for speaking to us. It was very, very interesting because uh, you have the ability to influence minds, man. That's a powerful job. So, Adam, that was a great discussion we had with uh, Zoltan Nagy. So uh, what did you get out of that? He was awesome, actually. I really liked him. It was interesting because sometimes I'm a bit yin and yang with with academics. Sometimes I think they're too academic and they're not in the real world, but his research really seems to be impacting the real world. He seemed to be in touch with what was going on. I love the historical research he did as well there, you know, tracking the thermal comfort and energy issues and how they sort of in separate silos and still are, right. amazingly, 200 years later. How is that possible? Yeah. What is going on? I know. <laughs> Crazy. It, uh, But he, he was good. It was interesting, interesting research, you know, and at some point there has to be resolution to this, right? There has to be a resolution and a coming together of the thermal comfort issues and the energy issues because it's just not really happening. The well-being standard might be taking it that way. Even lead might be taking it that way. But at the moment, you know, it's an either-or situation to me, I think. What do you think? Yeah, I no, I, I agree with you. And as I, as we said in the, in the interview that uh, energy has drawn the attention – of so many people and influence in it that there's focus on you know the mechanical efficiencies and the electrical efficiencies and the enclosure efficiencies and have not totally ignored thermal comfort but it's been a side discussion it's it's that topic over there that belongs to the people you know those crazy humans that have to make the make the building work and so I was really happy to hear Zoltan talk about how you know he's back in the 1800s that thermal comfort in terms of their literature research, you know, there was a lot of papers uh, relative to the time. And then on the continuum, that was sort of replaced by research work in energy and controls. And then, but there was this canyon in between the 
control responsibilities and what they're actually for and the, and the comfort research. And then I was really happy, happy to hear him say that that was coming back, that there was more thermal comfort papers being published. That tells me that people are starting to pay attention. You know, okay, we've, we've discussed this energy thing enough. We know how to control buildings. We may, we're not using the right control system sensors and that maybe some of the manufacturers that are listening will produce those sensors and ultimately we'll see a merger of the world of building science the human sciences the control sciences and i, I that's what i got out of it that i if zoltan had a, a vision and if that was it you know a coming together finally a resolution as you talk about that i'm all i'm all for that i think that's a wonderful wonderful vision to have well i think your thinking and work is really sort of in that space, right? You've always been talking about thermal comfort as a driver, low exergy systems as a driver. Right. You know, how do you get that? The question is, how do we get that mainstream, right? Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that he mentioned exergy was great. I'm so glad he did because that really, uh, I think at the end of the day, ultimately our generation and the generations before us will be judged by our exergy efficiency, not our energy efficiency. And it'll be embarrassing. You know, we've talked about before, I mean, I would love to have another lifetime or two because I would like to see what happens to mankind over the next couple hundred of years. And uh, I just know that in order for the you know humanity to survive, that we have to look at it from an exergy perspective. Couldn't agree more. And so for those of you listening, you should be very clear that Robert and I are not in the green Taliban. We're not tree huggers. <laughs> My car is about as environmentally friendly as a hole in the Amazon basin. So yet we care and know these are issues, right? So please realize this is, we are not flip-flop wearing tree huggers. <laughs> no, no. no. But, and no, and no bad about it. No, I'm not a tree hugger by, by any stretch of imagination. But I do know, Adam, that... I went through a philosophical change uh, probably 10 years ago looking at my life and what I uh, how my life uh, uses resources. Yeah. And I just there were so many things that were happening, you know, with transportation, you know, vehicles that we had and and, and uh, things that we did for entertainment and um, you know, <laughs> places that we needed to, you know, to, to have, to make us feel comfortable without feeling claustrophobic. And, you know, so I'm talking about big houses, boats, and big trucks, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I just, and I, and I had a philosophical change that I said, you know, this is not right. I mean, I live in an area where I can walk to everything that's in my neighborhood. I can walk to the gym, I can walk to the grocery store. And so I've started to do that. I've incorporated that into my life. And, you know, we got rid of the the boats and the big trucks because we don't need it anymore. The problem for me and, and for you, because this is your problem too, is that we use the airlines a lot. Oh, yeah. I have my own personal ozone hole. <laughs> I, I abuse oh, I airplanes a lot. But, you know, it's we, you and I are blessed, right? We're fortunate enough to live in North America where the good life is available at a low price. But the price for that is not fully priced in because it's a price future generations will pay. Don't want to sound preachy here, but what you had was an epiphany, right? There's a word for that. It's called an epiphany. Hashtag stay woke. (laughs) But, you know, it's true. You can't carry on on this trajectory. If you do a... If you extrapolate out on a straight line of where we're going now, you know, it doesn't end well. Something's got to change through technology or habit or culture or probably all them things, right? Yeah. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm at the back end of my career. This is something for young engineers to solve, right? But they've got to be aware of it, I suppose, to 
to get on it, right? And he was certainly in that camp. So good for, good for you, Zoltan, man. More power to you, man. Keep going. Well, yeah, absolutely. And and you, I mean, you have a young daughter yeah. that's in engineering. Yeah. And, you know, we have to put our faith in science. Despite the political It's a very rational approach, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so... But but you know what I mean? Like I mean, we the young engineers that are in university now, coming out of university, they're going to have to come up with solutions, not yeah. only to the future problems that are going to be facing them, but also to fix the things that we've screwed up in the past. Oh yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, the only way to do that. My message to any young graduates out there is: get your fundamentals handled. Understand that you need to apprentice under someone wise and old, but try not to take on their mindset. You've got to agitate for change and you've got to avoid path dependency. Just because it's yeah. always been done that way doesn't mean it has to be done that way going forward, right? Yeah, well, well said. And you don't have to be a revolutionary to do that. You can just be clever and innovative, right? Elon Musk isn't a revolutionary, but some people will call him that, right? Yeah. You know, if you're in a business of selling petrol cars, he's your worst nightmare come true because he actually might succeed. And there is the equivalent in HVAC and buildings all over the place. So, you know, as a rallying call to young engineers, I say get out there and make a difference, man. My generation didn't do that too well, so hopefully yours will. Yeah, and hopefully the, the you know, engineers coming out of university and colleges uh, won't be faced with ethical dilemmas like some of their predecessors have been have been faced. And I think of uh, the lecture that uh, Professor Roland Clift uh, gave on engineering for sustainable development. And if you can get that, we'll listen to that part, that, uh, that uh, lecture. And he talked about engineers that were employed by the Nazi regime in designing the ovens, you know, yeah. and, uh, and how those engineers were basically faced with, if you don't do this, then we will, annihilate your own family and you know and those ethical decisions so when i think about engineers coming out of school today and practicing within a free world system you know where no one's there to gonna threaten to kill you you know things can be pretty tough but you still have an honorable profession and hold that uh, close to your heart and stick with your ethics yeah right engineering is a force for public good that should never be forgotten man yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, so let's uh, let's wrap up. Have you seen anything on the uh, social media lately that's rattled your cage or got you excited? <laughs> yeah, you know, just a continuation of uh, architectural follies, <laughs> and, architectural pornography everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's all over the place, and uh, which is good and bad. And, yeah. and you know, the architectural profession recognized a few years ago that they were taking a hit to both sides of the head like you know it wasn't what it wasn't a two by four to the left it was a two by four to the left and the right and uh and i think you know we're seeing municipalities across north america responding with enforcement of energy codes better building construction and part of that is has is a response to the abuse (laughs) that uh, guys like you and me have been throwing out and we're just two peas in a pod i mean there's some bigger voices than ours out there that have been really slamming these guys so it's a tough prof- profession, but I think the pressure that they're under is is starting to create change. I think they're starting to see it. I, at least I, ha- I have to have faith that they're going to see it, well, that they need to change. For good or bad, architects are the tip of the design spear, right? Right. And unless they start embracing a more holistic design approach and having engineers with them all the time, 
Right. It's not going to change. So, yeah, uh, they're right to be attacked and they're right to change and evolve, you know, and good for them guys that are doing it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. I've been thinking about uh, project management recently. I read a great book by an ex-Navy mm. SEAL called Jocko Woolock. It's called Extreme Ownership. Oh, and yeah. he is a proponent of, you know, just own it, good or bad, embrace the suck, right? Then he, he uh, there's a great chapter in there about team management, you know, and in his, in his world, there's no bad teams, there's just bad leaders. So that's, you know, I'm thinking about writing a blog on that, about scaling it up to projects because you go on a project and people say, oh, this is a bad project. No, it's not. It's just been some awfully bad management and leadership decisions made that have led it to be bad, right? Yeah. And I, you know, the more I, I take on Jocko's ethos, the more you see that he's right. There are no bad leaders. There's bad decisions made. There's bad budget decisions made. There's weak design engineers who won't stand up to clients. Sometimes you've got to say no, right? Yeah. Uh, easy for me to say as a semi-retired guy with nothing to lose, right? But, you know, <laughs> someone must have some testicles out there. <laughs> yeah, well, if you want to grow some testicles, you got to listen to Jocko's podcast, right? Yeah. You awesome. put me on to him. Yeah, he's yeah. he's great. Yeah. You listen to a couple of podcasts. Do you want to share some of the other podcasts you listen with yeah, the listeners? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of comedy and I, I'm a bit of a political whore as well. So I like, um, I listen to The Fighter and the Kid. I listen to Bill Burr for comedy, always. I listen to Joe Rogan just for life philosophy and badassery. And I listen to Jocko just to make me get out of bed and not be a wuss. Those are the ones <laughs> I always listen to no matter what. And the other one I really like is, Ke- is the Kevin Pollock chat show. He's a comedian who does the best Christopher Walken impression and the best Captain Kirk impression you will ever hear in your life. If you close your eyes, you don't know it's not them guys. So I recommend <laughs> all them podcasts to people. They are brilliant. And they keep there you sane. go. That's coming from the, from the mind of Yoda. Yeah. So there you go. That's, uh, That's what yeah. keeps me safe and sane. Good. You've got to have comedy in your life and you've got to have discipline. And I need both of them to balance me out or I go a bit off message <laughs> that's some, those are some great words of wisdom to end this uh, podcast that's yeah. awesome Adam thank you as always always a pleasure okay till the next time take care all right man. take care see ya. see ya bye you've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean to access show notes for this episode visit edificecomplexpodcast.com if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review on iTunes See you next time.